Howdy, folks. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of TGC Midweek. Jacob and Michael back with you on the pod. Michael, what's going on, man? Another edition. I another love it. edition. It's been a minute. We're back. Yes. Summer, took the summer off. Took the summer off. Did you guys do anything fun or particularly summery? We did. Uh, we were able to travel a little bit to visit family primarily. And one of the trips that we've taken the past few years is to Arkansas uh, to visit my family. They're not from Arkansas, from Memphis, but my part of the family uh, has enjoyed uh, meeting at a lake there in central Arkansas over the past few years. And so we always look forward to that. That was a lot of fun. But it's good to be back in a schedule and rhythm of yeah. life now. You guys like water ski or fish or just kind of hang out? Um, a little bit of everything. We don't water ski simply because the, the boat we have access to might be able to pull up our, our youngest kids, oh, okay. but it's, not like it's probably not powerful boat. enough yeah, yeah, to, yeah. to pull up the adults. But we do have fun tubing behind the pontoon. Um, it's kind of a pontoon boat gotcha. with an outboard motor, but it's, it's plenty fast for us. And, um, just kind of relax, read, swim, go out on the boat, um, and enjoy the week. Nice. What about Sounds you guys? Good. Uh, no, nothing fun. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I hate fun. <laughs> yeah. No, the summer's been crazy. Just, uh, uh, work's been really busy and we moved recently. And so yeah, that'll do it. A lot of chaos. We did go to, um, my family reunion. This is my mother's family. Um, that, that side of, of our group, we went to the family reunion, yeah. uh, for that side, which was, um, uh, up in Kentucky, mm-hmm. Southwestern Kentucky. And, um, it was, it was fine. Um, the, the place that we were, that where the reunion was hosted was a, uh, state park resort. Oh yeah. The word resort mm-hmm. leaves a tremendous amount to be <laughs> desired. Uh, one of those things is air conditioning. Yeah. <laughs> and so it was, it was a pretty brutal couple of days. Hmm. Um, yeah, that like. Midwest heat in early July is just it's brutal. Not fun, man. Not yep. fun. We did go through Memphis though, so we saw your yeah. We went it's funny your to hear Kentucky described as the Midwest. I, I think you're probably right. St. Louis, Missouri, was always described as the gateway to the Midwest. Yeah, I always considered Kentucky to, Kentucky to be a part of the South, though. Well, you know, it's like it is when it wants to be, and it's not when it doesn't. I yeah, guess. Yeah, it, it can. It was a border ways, state, right? yeah. so. It was a depends on how state. you define the South, I guess. But yeah. if you just define the t- the South in terms of like, um, the, like the antebellum American South, mm-hmm. then technically, I guess no. But if you define it as like general redneckery, then absolutely, there it is. So, <laughs> I'll, let me just say, horse that, country, yeah, horses and and bourbon. It we the drive was this sounds horrible, but the drive was like the best part of the trip because mm-hmm. it was just part of the country that we're not really familiar with and got to drive through it, but. Um, when we were up there, my uh, oldest son he was getting restless, and so I, it was kind of my job to kind of pal around with him and let him climb on rocks. And there's a little <laughs> playground uh, near the, our cabin, and he would go play on that. And there were a couple of other kids uh, that he made friends with. And I, I can't remember one of the kids' names because I couldn't quite understand him. But the other kid's name, how he introduced himself, and the name by which his parents beckoned after him. Uh-huh. Was biscuit biscuit? I like it. <laughs> and if that's not the most Kentucky thing, <laughs> that's great. <laughs> I don't know biscuit. what it is. So yeah, that's come a here biscuit. Yeah. Well, you know, there's an Alabama football player uh, that was in Austin this past weekend 
pretty prominent uh, on their team named Kool-Aid. Oh, boy. Yeah. So biscuit and Kool-Aid. There it is. There it is. Yeah. All right. Well, gentlemen, hey, question of the week this week. I'm excited for this one. If you could only use one word for the rest of your life, what would that word be? Guillermo, why yep. don't you? No, 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 no. no. Okay. Yeah, that's you, sir. If I could only use one word for the rest of my life, I'm thinking about the the word that would bring the most utility to my life. Uh, that was not how I was thinking about it. That's and a good way of thinking about it. I think the word that would bring the most peace to my heart and utility in my life would be the <laughs> word no. <laughs> and uh, and so if I could only say no for the rest of my life, that I don't I don't think that would be a bad choice. But I will say when you hear the word no, that's an abrasive word to hear. Sure. You're not used to hearing the word no. Yeah. And in fact, when I ask somebody for a favor or ask somebody to do something and they say no, it always kind of brings me up short. Mm. And I think about it for the rest of the day, <laughs> which is an interesting thing to consider. Yeah. Yeah. We don't like no, but it'd probably be a good word for us to use more often. I took this a different direction and took it generally as to what is your favorite word. Oh, <laughs> You're, Which, you're a good guy, man. <laughs> um, my favorite word is not one that I use a lot, mm-hmm. but it's the word that I would like to say the most for no other reason than, this is going to sound super weird, I like the way it feels in my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> I like the way the consonants what? bounce against my palate oh, when I say the word perspicacity. Which is a delightful word to oh say. Oh, my gosh. Now, I've heard perspicuity. What is perspicacity? Is it the same? I, I heard this on a podcast, <laughs> and then I used it. Yeah. It means like uh, clear? Cun- cunning or insightful oh, okay. or clever. Perspicuity would be clear. Okay. But perspicacity. Yeah. The quality oh. of being perspicacious. Wow. And I just like the way that that feels, you know, bouncing off of my palate. It does the mixture nice. of those... The soft consonants. Can you say the, it one more time slowly so we can all try it? <laughs> the mixture of the, the hard and the soft consonants just kind of bouncing around is delightful. And, and Perspicacity. Say it, perspicacity. 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 And what does it mean? It means like, uh, I think it means cunning or insightful. Um, the quality of having or possessing or delivering insight. Okay. Perspicacity. Yeah. Well, we all want to be perspicacious, I guess. There it is. We hope this podcast is perspicacious. Yeah. TGC perspicacious. That's a new, new midweek perspicacious perspicuity. Per, um, I'm messing it up already. <laughs> uh, mine was, I think, less uh, pleasant on the palate than that one, Jacob. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, I think I'd just go with like sweet. So people will be like, this is the most chill guy in the world. Like, Sweet. Yeah. Counselor, I'm going to rule against you. Sweet. You know? <laughs> you know, it's, it's like, you know, take your, here. you may kiss your wife. Sweet. Sweet. I dig it. it. It's going to cost $5,000 to fix your <laughs> house. Sweet. Yeah. Just go with the flow. Yeah. It's a total, <laughs> total go with the flow word. Yeah. And if I had to do that, people would be like, this guy is awesome. Have to be laid back. I think I would have to be more laid back than I am. And I'm kind of laid back, but I could use some more. Uh, I could use some more surfer in my life. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
I like it. That's good. That's sweet. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, fellas, new season at TGC Midweek launching into a new series for the next uh, undefined period of weeks, handful of weeks. Um, going to be looking at the Sermon on the Mount. Um, Michael, why don't you tell folks, um, why don't you just start us high and zoom us in here? Yeah. Uh, so next few weeks, you mentioned looking at the Sermon on the Mount. It is found in... Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, and I think it would be good to talk a little bit about the context first. Um, What leads up to the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus is beginning his ministry, and he's primarily in a fairly uh, poor region of Israel uh, known as Galilee. He's performing miracles, ministering to the physically poor, diseased, demonized, paralyzed, marginalized, And he's drawing great crowds to himself because of his healing. And Jesus is uh, beginning to draw quite the the crowd because of the miracles that they're experiencing. And he's proving to be a man of God. And then you get the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And in many ways, Jesus is seeking to show that he's a prophet of God and that um, he never intended to come and heal all of the sick in Israel. His goal was to make disciples. Yeah. His miracles and his healing ministry was meant to accentuate his teaching. And so it's interesting if you look at the context, leading up to the Sermon on the Mount, he's, he's healing all these folks, people are getting excited, and he almost has to say, all right, let's stop for a minute and talk about why I'm really here. Yeah. Um, why I really came was to preach the kingdom of God, the good news of the kingdom. And so why are you putting it in that order? Uh, and I guess my question is the chrono- chronology of mm-hmm. where this is falling. Can you talk about that a little bit more for, before we move on? Because yeah. I know that Matthew is not written very chronologically, but in the book of Matthew, it appears there's like... All, there's Jesus' birth, all this stuff about John the Baptist, then Jesus tempted by the devil, mm-hmm. calls disciples, Sermon on the Mount. So it yep. kind of seems like uh, the kickoff party yeah. sort of thing. In some ways it is. So he calls his first disciples, Matthew chapter 4, verse 18, and then he's ministering to great crowds just before he okay. starts to preach the Sermon on the Mount. And this is what leads to the Sermon on the Mount. He went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and from the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. And then in Matthew chapter 5, in verse 1, it says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And then he launches into the Beatitudes by opening his mouth and teaching them, saying, and then the Sermon on the Mount. So then after the Sermon on the Mount, we have things like Jesus cleanses a leopard, the faith of a centurion. Yes. um, The cause following Jesus. Jesus calms a storm. Jesus heals two men with demons. Jesus heals a paralytic, et cetera, et cetera. So So these are the things that happen in that paragraph, that kind of intros. Yes. Those are the things that happen. It might be even more, but can you imagine the Sermon on the Mount being extracted 
and not having chapters five, six, and and seven in in the Gospel of Matthew, it would seem like Jesus was just a miracle worker. Sure. And, and so okay. I guess I'm just trying to put you know this this sermon that Jesus preaches in context, um, how important it was for it to be at the beginning of mm-hmm. Matthew. Uh, and how important it was for folks to understand this wasn't just a miracle worker. Yeah, uh, this wasn't someone that was just going to grant wishes and meet all of our felt needs. Jesus had a bigger, grander agenda in mind, and the Sermon on the Mount allows him to express that agenda to these folks that are obviously attracted to him because of what he can do for them. Yeah, and so um, I think that that's that's an important thing to. Or at least an interesting thing uh, to think about uh, the way that Matthew orders um, this book in, in context. Yeah. Um, the other thing uh, to think about when you think about the Sermon on the Mount is it is describing the heart, mind, outlook, and values of a disciple. And so Jesus is coming proclaiming the kingdom. In fact, that phrase is used multiple times. I don't know exactly how many off the top of my head in the book of Matthew, but the Sermon on the Mount is what life in the kingdom looks like. And so, um, obviously, there's a large crowd there. There are some disciples that have already decided to follow Jesus and have heard his teachings. You have to think that Jesus taught in the synagogues, you know, in Matthew chapter 4, it even intimates Mm -hmm, that. mm -hmm that they had been exposed of some of his teaching. And then the Sermon on the Mount is really his coming out party with regard to his preaching and teaching. In terms of Matthew and the gospel that he presents. Um, and so uh, it's the longest uh, set of teaching that you have up to that point in the book of Matthew. Um, and so um, it... Uh, yeah, what are you guys looking at here? I'm I'm confused. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, Go ahead. No, no. Please continue your thought. We're laughing at something you said that you didn't mean the way that it. Oh, what uh, did I say? You said something? the term. You said the phrase "coming out party," which is. <laughs> oh, is that not a good phrase? Uh, we'll talk offline. But okay. <laughs> Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> Continue your thoughts So, here. guys, you'll have to see me and Jacob and Guillermo sitting around the table, <laughs> and I'm saying something, and then they're kind of looking at me very weird, and I'm like, am I speaking truth still? <laughs> That's what's going through my mind. I'm like, guys, are y'all disagreeing with me? It's okay if you do, but yeah. like, I thought I was saying No, no, was you're, you're good. Okay. You're we, looking over at me, and I was weird like... Weird phrase, <laughs> but, you know, and we'll go I, with it. Yeah. No, I don't even know what, what it means, but I want to say y'all need to get your mind out of the gutter. <laughs> yeah, it's a modern turn of phrase, yeah. turn of we'll words. Call it, a, call it a kickoff party. Yeah. Okay. yeah. I like that one. Yeah. Um, okay. <laughs> get us Wh- back on track here, Jacob. I'm sorry I took us off. Where where were we? Um, I don't know. Just the facial feedback so important, right? That we're having a conversation, and I, I, yeah. I picked up the social cues that I was moving on beyond <laughs> where y'all were tracking, so... So we were talking about how this is what what life in the kingdom looks like. Um, there's so much to go into with that that I know we'll get in, into each of those in in future in future episodes. But from a high level, uh, what do you mean yep. by? Because like, yes, um, I understand that he's saying that. I understand what blessed and are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven will look like, I understand what that means, but does that mean I should go and like how much of this is, uh, 
wisdom and describing conditions versus how much of this is like you must go do this thing sort of yeah um i think I it's a little bit of both sense, but yeah it, and it should be both but the context uh you know when when jesus enters uh or, or um goes up to the mountain and he sits down to teach, which signaled that Jesus sat down, that he was about to engage in some extended teaching, because in that day and age, a rabbi would sit while he taught. That's so interesting, because now it would be if you stood now up. Now we stand, yeah. It would, be, <laughs> it would be a little awkward in our culture if the preacher or the teacher sat. Sat down. Um, but in that day and age, that was just what was it. When Jesus sat, people knew what to expect. Some teaching is coming, and disciples would have stood. Uh, and so uh, the rabbi sits, and in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, it's primarily for those who are already disciples. It, it's not essentially law, although there are some things that we can talk about in terms of how this, um, what Jesus does in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 mirrors what Moses did back in Exodus chapter 20 and going up on a mountain and bringing the word of the Lord to God's people. Uh, but the Sermon on the Mount is essentially a description of the character of a disciple. And so there is a, a difference um, that Jesus uh, wants to draw here uh, between who he's speaking to. Uh, now, obviously, there's a lot of folks in the crowd that are just there um, because they are attracted to Christ. They want their felt needs met. They've seen his healing. Uh, and it just, you know, is, is an interesting thing to think about even inviting non-Christians to church. It's, it's not a wasted Sunday morning if non-Christians are there eavesdropping, so to speak, yeah. on what Christians believe and teach. Uh, there were a lot of eavesdroppers in this Sermon on the Mount, but I think that we'd all agree that um, those that do not yet follow Jesus, those that do not have a regenerated heart, are not poor in spirit. They're not meek. They don't understand their need for righteousness. They don't pursue and hunger and thirst after God's way. And so Jesus here is describing a picture or portrait of what a disciple looks like. And there's a lot of people listening into this sermon uh, that are going to learn about what it looks like to follow the Messiah and hopefully even be on a good trajectory to place their faith in him so that they might continue or begin to follow him as well. Um, but primarily the context is for those that are already disciples. And if you don't get that, you're going to read the Sermon on the Mount in a, in a radically different way than you would if you hold to that mm -hmm. um, uh, foundation, that this is life in the kingdom. Um, and, you know, we talked a little bit in the green room, as you like to say, about the fact that the New Testament letters— so if you look at the New Testament, you've got the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That is historical eyewitness accounts of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. You've got the book of Acts, which is history. Uh, how did the early church begin to grow and spread throughout the known world and the Roman Empire in the first century? And then you've got letters that are written to specific churches, and those letters are primarily applying um, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ and the principles and the teachings that he would have taught on the pages of the Gospels to their specific situations in those cities, Ephesus, Philippi, Corinth. And if you think about it that way, the Sermon on the Mount, I mean, it just, it's, hard to, it's hard to think of something more important for the Christian life than a sermon coming out of the mouth of the second person of the Trinity, mm -hmm. the Son of God himself. 
we can look at his life and his ministry and apply principles from what we read in the Gospels. But this is, I'm using another phrase, you guys are probably going to laugh. It's straight from the horse's mouth, so to speak. That's not a bad phrase, is it? No. Okay. No. Um, by the way, coming out party, I've used that for uh, sports stars, you know, having their first great, um, you know, game. Anyway, anyway. Um, I need to stop justifying yeah, the coming out party. Let's move on. <laughs> Your inbox is going um, to full tomorrow. My, yeah, that's right. Um, so this, th- I mean, and if you and if you stop and think about it too, Jesus doesn't, I mean, he does some teaching in the Gospels, but extended teaching is very rare that you see from Jesus, except for the Gospel of John. That's different. Yeah. There are there are extended discourses in the Gospel of John, and the Gospel of John, as you likely know, is different than what we call the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John is kind of its own deal altogether, and so you do get more extended discourse there. But in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Sermon on the Mount, beyond the Upper Room Discourse, which is actually in John, um, and then some of the upper room discourse pieces that you get in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The Sermon on the Mount is like, it is Christ's sermon. Yeah. And we talked about this, that it's likely a sermon that, that, he, that he preached multiple times, dozens and dozens, if not hundreds and hundreds, uh, as he traveled the, the countryside and as he traveled city to city, town to town, uh, throughout the three years of his ministry. This is what he took to preach. Now, when I did RUF campus ministry, uh, I was privileged to be invited to preach at different churches in our presbytery, and I loved it because instead of preparing a new sermon like I have to do every week now at Trinity Grace, <laughs> uh, I could take my favorite sermon yeah. and preach it, you know, 12 times a summer to 12 different congregations. The best of Novak. It was the honey stick, is what you <laughs> called it, the thing that drew people to the gospel. And so you always wanted to take your honey stick if you were traveling out and about to preach to different congregations, um, and you could call the Sermon on the Mount Christ's honey stick. Uh, it was what he taught. Um, and it makes sense if you think about it, because you see uh, in Luke chapter 6, the Sermon on the Plain, and it looks very similar to the Sermon on the Mount. Now, some biblical scholars say, is that Luke's uh, recounting of the Sermon on the Mount? Well, the Sermon on the Plain sounds different than the Sermon on the Mount. It likely was just Luke hearing this sermon preached in a different location. That's one option that you have to take there. On top of that, you see uh, other um, principles that Jesus lays down in the Sermon on the Mount talked about in different uh, areas of the Gospels. And uh, and you, you brought this up when we met last week, Jacob. I thought it was really insightful, uh, the fact that this was an oral culture. Um, they would have had to have heard it a, a number of times um, in order to have remembered it in such mm-hmm, detail. Mm-hmm. And even the way that you read it, you mentioned this in the green room, and I hate to steal your thunder, but the way you read it, it doesn't read like Jesus just sat down, started yeah. in verse 2, and ended in the end of chapter 7. This was an organized yeah. comp- compilation of what the what Matthew heard. There's, there's a... Um... There's probably a better way of saying this, but I'm going to say it this way. There's There appears to be a randomness to the order of parts of the Sermon on the Mount, where it's, where it's like there's one topic that's addressed, and then there's a hard shift to another one that doesn't seem like a uh, the natural flow of a prepared sermon. It And to me, this emphasizes the authenticity of the account because it's 
it's Matthew years after the fact recalling the core sermon that Jesus used to give. And it was like, man, I got to remember when he would, when he would teach this thing and he would say this. And then there was this other part that he would always hit. And so it's just, it, there, it is a little bit of an assemblage of these different like core themes Mm -hmm. stitched together. Um, which I think highlights that it was probably done multiple times and speaks to the authenticity of it because it's being recorded as one is recalling it. Yep. Um, but yeah, there is just this kind of like herky jerkiness a little bit to how it flows. Yes. Yeah. There's not a whole lot of smooth transition. Yeah. Um, the other thing that you think about is Matthew was an outsider and he had been brought into the inside of Christ's circle of disciples. And it's just a, a, another tangible picture of what could happen if you're exposed to Jesus and his words. Uh, the many outsiders that were listening into the Sermon on the Mount written by who, who, one who was once an outsider now become an insider. You gotta, it, there's just something special about that to, as you think about it. Matthew, the outsider, became the insider, wrote this sermon so that outsiders might become you know, insiders yeah. and learn how to follow Jesus. Can I push back on something you said before? Yep. Not really push back. Just want to understand where you're coming from. You said it was preached to Jesus's disciples. Um, and by disciples there, you're meaning more than just the 12. It's it's the the group of folks that is following him. Can yep. you elaborate on that a little bit more? Because you, you said it really changes how you read the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm trying to get to... I'm trying to understand where you're coming from, where you said he was preached to his disciples. Because mm-hmm. I understand that the crowd was following him. Yep. But throughout the gospel ac- accounts, the character of the crowd is pretty fickle. Yep. kind of comes and goes and changes and is following him largely. Like when Jesus feeds the 5,000, he says, you came to me because you got your share of the bread. Yep. So he's preaching this sermon to this group. Are they um, like saved as we would understand it or is this just the the group that's following him around and so it's a mixture mm-hmm. of um saved and non-saved fo- believers yep. and non-believers it's the latter and this is a tension i feel too uh when i talk about the sermon on the mount being geared towards christ's disciples because this is a mixed crowd yeah Okay. There are those who have committed their life to Christ, and uh, a picture of that would be Jesus calling his first disciples back in Matthew chapter 4, uh, verse 18 to 22, when uh, John and uh, Simon and Andrew begin to follow him. Those are committed disciples, although as you read the Gospels, they're wavering disciples. Yeah. Uh, but you might say that those are folks that have left everything to follow Jesus. They have um, taken upon his yoke which is what a disciple would have uh, uh, done with, uh, with a rabbi. There are others that obviously just had their felt needs met or need their felt needs met, and they're following Jesus. And so you've got a mixture of both. Um, but the, the, the reason that folks make a big deal of this in terms of the context of the Sermon on the Mount uh, comes primarily from verse 1 from the Scripture itself. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he had sat down, his disciples came to him. Oh, okay. But we also realize that, that that there's more than just disciples. And, it, and you bring up a great point when you think of uh, him feeding the 5,000, which would have been more like 20,000 if you included women and children. There were many there that just wanted their needs met, yeah. and they left. And at the end of the day, the 12 disciples were the only ones that stuck around. Um, but 
if you think of the Sermon on the Mount, you've got to think of it as more descriptive than prescriptive. And so Jesus has his disciples coming to him. He's been talking about the kingdom, and now he's about to lay out, specifically in the Beatitudes, but even more than that, throughout the whole sermon, what life as a disciple looks like, what life in his kingdom looks like. And so um, uh, it, 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 it's both and. Yeah. Um, and and here, there, here's the reason why I bring that up is because isn't that law? Um, basically, this sermon does two different things for different the two uh, different cross sections of the crowd. For those that are uh, non-believers or not yet believers, it 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 kind of like if you're not a believer and somebody who is a profound teacher and miracle worker who you've at least respected or admired, if someone is telling you these things, it can it can actually probably beat you down a little oh, bit. Oh yeah. Like if I'm not uh, if I'm not a Christian and I'm reading that this is um. The, these people are the ones that are blessed. And then it, going beyond the Beatitudes, all like if, if you lust after a woman, you've committed adultery with her. If you're angry with your brother, you've murdered him. Like this can beat you down. And so um, yep. I can't remember now if it's the first or second use of the law, but that's one of those things, how it just kind of highlights your sin and, dri- and drives you to the need for a savior. Yep. This and then is... for the other cross section of the crowd, it becomes what you've just mentioned, which is, like, this is what life in the kingdom looks like, and so it becomes the third use of the law, which is the guide for life. Great way to think about it. The topic of the sermon is life in the kingdom, how a person in right relationship should act. And Jesus is inviting us to see the world as he does. Mm-hmm. The Sermon on the Mount is how Jesus sees life in the kingdom. But it's also the gospel in a sermon, because when you see the depth of your need, you either pull yourself up by your bootstraps and yeah. continue to fail, or you ask for grace, you receive that grace, and then you're brought back to the Sermon on the yeah. Mount as a pathway to life. Yes. The thing is, though, in the Sermon of the Mount, there's not really an extension of the gospel. Sure. Would you agree or disagree with that? Um, I, the, the the come to me, all you who are uh, heavy laden is that yeah. that's not part of the sermon in, on the mountain. No, that so would this be Matthew eleven. Yeah, so this is like my where I'm trying to go at this is the sermon on the mount is like it's all law. Yeah, to, to Jacob, to your point, um, this is just my two cents, and I don't know if this is going to be helpful or not. I think um, the the pictures, at least when I read it, that in my mind between what Jesus is doing and between and what Moses has done mm-hmm. are are very strong very strong and when he does the in modern parlance I think you're going to know cuz you listen to the podcast the law splainer uh-huh of yeah I'm I'm going to go to the nth degree and really tell you what's beyond the law and Jesus is talking law of a kingdom. He's on a mountain. These are Israelites mm-hmm. hearing him. Um, and so and, and the thing I wanted to throw in there is that the disciple thing I think is it's accurate. I don't know if it's helpful to think of it where Jesus is reaching out to the covenant people. And covenant people meaning the way that Paul describes the covenant people. People of Abraham, of faith. 
this explanation of what his positioning himself as the greater Moses Mm -hmm. and going beyond what Moses gave them. And I think he basically said, this is going to hit with the covenant people, the true covenant people. It it may, it's for everybody, but this is going to be something that the covenant people are going to be like, yeah, I want that. Yeah. I want that for me. I want that for my family. How it's, so it's kind of like wetting the whistle. I want how, tell me more. Mm. Uh, and then Jesus will go on and, and, and tell them more, like lay down your, go sell all your goods and come follow me. And now that's in a different part, different, I think it might even be a different gospel, but um, I don't know if that's helpful, but I, I thought the disciple thing, yeah, I think that's true. I, I think there's, if you think of the way that they maybe would have thought then of, they all thought they were the covenant people. Jesus and then Paul later clarifies, yeah, the covenant people are, it's not an ethnicity. Uh, and so when he's taking the position of Moses and doing this, there's a lot going on there. Um, and I think spiritually and then also kind of like everyone's kind of like, whoa. Yeah. He's he's putting himself on par with the big Mo. Yeah. You know, and that and I think that's a huge deal for the people of the day and certainly for the religious leadership of the day. I do think the parallel between what he's doing here and, and Moses coming down from the mountain too is um, you, you can't just walk past that. That's a, a big point. And that's like, honestly, that's part of the reason why I read this and it's like, this is, this is law. Um, it's sort of law turned up to a, in some ways it's law turned up to 11 because well, it's like mo- the law of Moses was, let me just, speak in kind of child's <laughs> terms. It was like fairly simple and straightforward and like easy. Like if you divorce your, yeah. if you want a divorce from your wife, you, 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 you scribble on a piece of paper and, and you're good, you know? Yeah. And Jesus ups the ante on all of this. Well, this reminds me of a conversation that we had years ago, maybe now about was the, was the law gracious? Oh. <laughs> Sparks. <laughs> and yeah. so, yeah, you, you know, that whole conversation Spicy. has to be had too, is is the Sermon on the Mount, even though the standards are high uh, and the dichotomy between law and gospel can be helpful hermeneutic in some ways yes. as we yeah. read the scriptures, can also not be helpful in other ways um, as we uh, read the scriptures in a more redemptive historical way. Uh, and, uh, and so I think that the Sermon on the Mount, although the standards are high, uh, still is describing life in the kingdom, life following the king. I think it's very helpful the way that you brought up the three uses of the law, mm-hmm. because I think that you can even apply, and I'm thinking off the top of my head right now, I don't know if I've ever heard anybody say this, so that's always dangerous, but apply the Sermon on the Mount using those three uses. Uh, you know, we we want folks to emulate life in the kingdom because it brings universal flourishing. First use of the law. Um, Second use of the law, you read some of Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount and you realize how far you come up short, which drives you further to Christ. Very important use of the Sermon on the Mount. And then the third use of the law really is what we're talking about here is now that you have been redeemed by Christ, 
you go back to the sermon to learn what life in the kingdom actually looks yep. like. And the interesting thing, and G, you pulling up the idea between Moses and Jesus, Jesus being the second Moses in many ways, or the greater and better Moses, is he is taking the law that was given to Old Testament Israelites and upping the ante, as you mentioned, Jacob. Uh, and we talked about this in the green room, too. Moses gave uh, the law in in a way that might be viewed as the floor, like it's the base minimum. Mm-hmm. Don't go below this. If you divorce your wife, like you said, give her a certificate of divorce at least. Uh, don't do like the pagans do and just completely leave her. Yeah, um, There's got to be a process, but you can still divorce your wife. You know, Jesus comes and says, you have heard that it was said that if you divorce your wife, give her a certificate of divorce. But I say that you can't divorce your wife unless of marital infidelity. Mm-hmm. And so he's raising the stakes and saying, we're not talking about the floor anymore. We're going to start talking about the ceiling. You've heard that it was said if you commit adultery. I say if you look at a woman with lust. You've heard it was said if you murder a person. I say if you speak angrily or harbor hatred in your heart towards a person, you've committed murder in your heart. He's really pulling the moral aspect out of the lowercase l legal aspect of the law. Because the law that Moses gives has moral, ceremonial, and civil purposes. Mm -hmm. And um, so it's – but and it's – the the emphasis for first century Judaism was on the civil and lowercase l legal purposes. And Mm -hmm. so Jesus is taking those like what would be like laws that – <clears throat> a municipality or a, a a government would would pass, and Jesus is extracting from that in that in that formulation. You've heard it said, but I say to you, He's saying, "Here's the the statute that you think you have to follow, but I say to you, there's this moral component yeah. of that that is really the higher standard." And along with that comes the expectation from Christ. And now that you're a believer in Christ, you you see it. They should have always known this. Yeah. This, this was always the standard. They were just so hard-hearted they couldn't rise to the standard. Yeah. Which brings us to the second use of the law. It, it drives us to Christ yep. because we realize we can't meet it. And so, um, you know, you've got the—this is going to be important as we continue talking about the Sermon on the Mount, by the way, the floor and the ceiling. Uh, because as we get into the meat of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to talk about the floor and say— all right, let's talk about the ceiling, yeah. all about motivations. Um, and so um, I guess we probably need to wrap up, but I, I'd say a few few more things. Four in the ceiling, Moses and Jesus, those are all Let me, let me add things. just one yeah. thing to that point. Like in our own society, we understand that kind of implicitly too. Like the, the, it, it, if, you were to say, if you were to say to me, so-and-so did something atrocious, and I were to say to you, but he didn't break the law. But it was mm-hmm. nevertheless atrocious. That doesn't excuse the behavior. And so even in our modern secular society, we have this legal code, which is the floor of behavior, but a moral standard that that produced the legal code, mm-hmm. but is higher than that code. And that's the same thing going on here. And Our standard, uh, my expectations for my neighbor is to behave in a way that is ab- above the law. Sure. Me- meaning, behave better than the law requires you to yep. do. And it's just, it, the anthropology of that is interesting because it's just a small echo that we are all made in God's image. Mm-hmm. 
that we even have those expectations. Right. Even if you're a non-believer, you expect that of your neighbor. Yep. And there's a certain appeal in the sermon. I mean, there's sweet promises with the blesseds, the beatitudes, but then there's noble values. And Jesus is presenting ideas in this sermon that the secular world, that secular society admires. Yeah. I mean, your coworker wants you to emulate the Sermon on the Mount, whether they realize it or not. Yeah. They might not articulate it that way, but they want to see you living kingdom values, uh, even though they might not follow the king. Um, there, there's, there's a weird attraction uh, to what Jesus, the picture he's painting. But then on top of that, the rigor of the sermon. I mean, the standards are high. Yeah. None of us meet the standards or the ceiling that Jesus puts up. And so there's a lot of penetrating questions in the Sermon on the Mount that calls disciples to introspectively think about their own life and, and throw themselves upon Jesus for greater grace and forgiveness. And so, and I'll end with this and happy to hear anything you guys have to say as well, obviously, but two things that stand out to me as if I were to identify the most important portions of the New Testament, the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes being primary in that Sermon on the Mount, and the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. That is the path, the way, the means of the Christian life. Mm -hmm. And it is our guide. Um, And I just... I can't overemphasize enough how important I find these two passages to be personally, but also how important I'm starting to see the church, how important it is for the church to to reclaim these two yeah. portions of the New Testament, especially in, a, in an increasingly partisan, polarized world where Christians are more, and I feel like this is a hobby horse of mine recently, and I'm sorry if folks are tired of hearing me talk about it, but folks... Uh, and Christians specifically being willing to engage any means necessary to accomplish good ends, yeah. that is not allowed. Yeah. Our means are the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, and the Fruit of the Spirit. And if we can't accomplish the ends through those means, we don't deserve the ends. Mm-hmm. And God promises that we will accomplish the ends that He has for us by using the means that He has outlaid for us. And we find them in these two pas- these two portions of the Scripture. And so... Um, I get kind of passionate about that. Come on, preacher. stop. (laughs) No, that's good stuff. I like it. Yeah. For those who, uh, and you guys can, uh, Michael, I was going to mention that, so I'll just tag on. For those who think that there might be a link between the last uh, series that we did and this one, you're right. Um, I think the same idea is the concentric or the, the wheel, the spoke, the same ideas that we had with the fruit of the spirit as we go, as the guys go through the Sermon on the Mount, I think are present. And so the same conceptual uh, mindset that or the, the perspective, the way that uh, we looked at the fruit of the spirit is very similar to the way we looked at the, or looking at Sermon on the Mount, certainly the Beatitudes. Um, I, I, I got a question maybe for you guys of uh, as folks listen to this and and they're in different areas of their walk with Christ um and we always kind of especially when we get into this ceiling and and the floor aspect would you guys think that uh, the question um when they look at the standard set that maybe a, a young believer maybe even a non-believer who's listened to the podcast 
would ask themselves would be, do I want this? Not do I live up to this, which is always that self-judgment, but is there something inside me that is attracted to this at all? Uh, and let that be something of an encouragement that as you, we go through this and hear it, that if there's something in you that's mm-hmm. attracted to the high standards that Christ sets, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, you're sure keep, keep walking because that is, I think that's one of the points. Mm-hmm. For to, for a believer, it certainly is. Yeah, um, and then for a non-believer, I think if you're if if you would not claim to follow Jesus, but you're attracted by the way that He outlines kingdom life or what it looks like to follow him. I had a seminary professor that would always categorize some people that he knew as not far from the kingdom of God. And if you have a desire uh, to follow the king in the way of uh, the life that he lays out, you know, we could talk soteriologically about this in so many different ways, but just from a human perspective, that is a good sign. Mm -hmm. You know, you're not far from the kingdom. Um, And so continue pressing, pressing forward. Um, and I guess I'll end with this quote, if that's okay. Uh, I think this is from Dr. Dan Doriani, a seminary professor of mine that taught Gospels when I was there and continues to teach there uh, even now. But he says, uh, talking about the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' words reveal His will, His character, and His grace. His will we cannot perfectly follow, and His character we will never perfectly attain. But his grace is sufficient for those who call on his name with sincere desire to know him and be known by him. And so I feel like that's a, a fairly good encapsulation of what we're going to be talking about in the coming weeks as we consider the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah. Well, good stuff, folks. Hope you've enjoyed this introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. Look forward to going through this with you over the coming weeks. If you have questions, um, now would be a really good time to send those in. If you've got questions on the Sermon on the Mount, things you would like us to uh, to make sure we we touch on on the respective episode, we'd love to receive those um, up front so that we can start slotting those in. So you can send those questions to the email address, questions at trinitygracesa.org. We look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, we'll see you later.